Hi everyone, this is Sydney Otomanchek from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Caitlin Arnholt and Elaine Nam. They joined us for the third webinar in a four-part series focused on current and emerging trends in science education, where they discussed and demonstrated how Vernier Science Education's Rate Law Determination Experiment has been embedded in the AD Instruments LT platform, and show how tools in LT promote community and scientific identity, reduce bias, and meet students' individual needs. Let's jump in. So our first question is, as someone who identifies as a woman in science, how do you bring up gender equality without sounding insensitive? I think for me, it always starts as a genuine conversation. So I think it's important to recognize maybe the privilege that you've had. And I think honestly, being open with students is really important. So. There have been times, you know, as a woman that I've struggled in my journey right through academia. And I think just being open and honest, students are generally really respectful. And I think that, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses from our experiences and just openly sharing those. I think students aren't used to that. And so when they hear those things, they're generally interested in having conversations and learning more. Great response. Thanks, Caitlin. Yeah. Elaine, do you have any personal experiences in this situation? I guess what I wanted to share more in terms of what Caitlin talked about and it being just more genuine in a conversation, I was just at the spring ACS national meeting in Indianapolis this past week. And typically the spring meetings have a lot of students, both the undergraduates and graduate students. And being in the expo hall, I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of folks a lot of educators, and especially a lot of students, they stop by our booth for multiple reasons. And a lot of them are job hunting. And so, you know, they come and just want to talk to you and you just, yeah, have that open, honest conversation. I think it just kind of happens organically. If you feel it forced, it feels uncomfortable. But I think in this, in our current uh, atmosphere, it just kind of comes up. I think it's a very open topic that students are wanting to discuss. Absolutely. Yeah. And I really like what you said, both of you, about being genuine. I think it's helpful for people when you also can relate to them, of course, um, being women yourselves. But yeah, having that discussion open, particularly for the people who also aren't women, so that they're, they have that knowledge too is uh, really important. Okay, our next question for today, how would you approach starting the discussion about DEIR in the classroom for someone who is nervous about doing so or potentially saying the wrong thing? I think for me, what's really important to feel confident enough to start these conversations is to really educate myself. And so there's a lot in the literature, in chemistry literature, or in a general education literature that talks about what people are trying and what they're doing and how to start these conversations and what has been successful and what hasn't. And so for me, I'm a person who always really likes to prepare for conversations ahead of time. And so that helps me feel more confident. But then I think it's okay to also like 
preface conversations with students by saying like, if I'm explaining something wrong or if I'm not using proper terminology or whatever the thing may be, right? Like if you have that relationship with students and you tell them that you want their feedback and that you're still learning, that helps me from being like nervous about doing the wrong thing because students like they want, like they have things to provide too. They know a lot maybe that I don't know. And so like being open and honest maybe about your discomfort is okay. Like that's not necessarily a bad thing. You can be uncomfortable, but also think that something is important. And I think that ties back into that, like the relationship being the center of, of what you're doing, right? So if you have an environment in your classroom room where students feel comfortable speaking to you and you feel comfortable sharing, that makes me feel less nervous. If I'm afraid about someone like really having an emotional response and being more argumentative about something, then yeah, I'm going to be more nervous. But if you kind of create that welcoming and open community where sharing ideas is encouraged, I think that helps me feel less nervous about doing things and admitting that you're going to say the wrong thing sometimes. And that's okay. Yeah, I was just actually thinking the same thing that I think being comfortable to talk about it is important because, well, in some classes, you could have so many students in your class that it would be difficult maybe to have that like kind of one-on-one -on -one discussion, but kind of related to the anonymous like lab reports and stuff that you were presenting before, maybe doing it the other way too and, and gathering that information anonymously as well would make people feel more comfortable. If any anyone has experienced that difficulty in being able to chat one-on-one -on -one with their students like that. Perfect. Elaine, did you want to add anything? Before? Yeah, I'm not in the classroom at the moment, but our company, we have kind of a DEI committee that I volunteer on. And uh, we do a lot of monthly, I guess, presentations, whether we bring in a speaker or look at articles or just topics. And one of the things we recently, which I think would fall under the diversity aspect a little bit, is we recently talked on neurodivergent in terms of like a communication and learning styles. And what you referenced, Sydney, is just perfect about the anonymous, because some students might not feel comfortable in this conversation. So having a way for them to communicate to you or have that discussion, whether it's written down anonymously or on paper or some other way is something else to consider. I mean, I don't present myself as an expert in any of this. And I think that's what's great about the conversations is we just are all having a conversation and learning together. And so that may reduce the barrier, like I said, just being genuine and honest in that we all want to learn together. Maybe that's my approach. I love that. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, if for somebody who's not in the classroom as well, we have like at my company, for example, like a Slack channel so people can put stuff in there if they have they come across like articles or just helpful things information so i love just the open continuous learning for everyone as well okay have you experienced resource inequality so some students perhaps not being able to afford some technology how do we build courses that don't require those large sums of money to participate actively and I would say that wouldn't necessarily include, of course, like textbooks. Uh, I remember those being very expensive too, but of course necessary. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can maybe move forward with something less costly. 
Yeah, I think it's really important to be aware of costs that we're putting on students. And I've heard from a lot of educators that there is movement from away from having them buy, you know, the incredibly expensive textbooks because there are so many great resources out there. And so I guess if I'm reflecting like on my time with students, I did have students that struggled to purchase technology or resources like that we were using for a course. But I think if as an educator, you strategically choose what you have your students pay for and how you're having them pay for it, there are some like clever workarounds that can help lower the cost, right? So instead of buying a $150 lab manual every semester or a $300 textbook, right? Maybe you could have them use a $50 online resource and a free textbook. And so you're having them use technology, right? To actually help them lower the, the out-of-pocket costs. And a lot of colleges have programs to help support students that maybe can't get access to a computer or or those things. And so that helps lower the, those barriers if you're not spending, you know, having your students spend over $300 on a, a course that's maybe for their major and maybe not. And so I think it's about strategically choosing which resources to use, if that makes sense, and how and how to get students to to really get the best bang for their buck, right? So like they're not buying, you know, a lab manual that has 500 experiments that they're not going to use. Like that's actually not a good value for them, right? So to look at the resources and try to try to really set students up to be spending money in a smart way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. For example, you presented a couple of those online resources through LT, for example. But yeah, it does take of course, effort on your part as a teacher to kind of figure that out for your students to help them. And yeah, I think that that is wonderful options for your students. Okay, let's jump in with one last question now. In a large classroom, so early undergraduate classes sometimes can have, you know, more than 300 students that I mentioned before. How would you encourage these open conversations with that many people? I know that we kind of brought up more of the anonymous, maybe yeah. people not feeling comfortable, but it definitely is still important to bring it up to the entire, you know, class um, so that everyone can participate and have that knowledge. What would your recommendation be? So I think... You know, when you're in a, a lecture hall with 300 students, right, it's really hard to build that like one-on-one -on -one connection, right? So, you know, if you're in a lab with 20 students, you can have that experience. But in a large classroom, it's definitely more of a challenge. And so I think in that situation, you don't have that one-on-one -on -one relationship to build off of, right? And so I think then you move almost more into a facilitator of those conversations. And so maybe you're not having the conversations with your students directly, but maybe you're setting expectations for them on how to have conversations with their peers or the people around them or the people they choose to work with that they're comfortable with. I think you, you know, set clear expectations for their behavior and the way that they speak to one another. I think you have to be very clear in it and then guide them kind of through conversations about their experiences. Maybe then you could stop and share a story and have them think about it in smaller groups. Because I do think there is, right, like I as a student would never feel comfortable like raising my hand and sharing my experiences with any of this in a room of 400 people. Like that would not have been me as a student. 
And so I think being a facilitator and setting like a structure for those conversations to happen, it, it, it transitions your, I guess, your goal in the way you're leading that conversation. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. And of course, sound, something too that can be kind of trial and error, you know, try it one day. If it doesn't work out, nobody wants to participate, then perhaps it is, you know, audience is shy or not comfortable or whatever the reason is. And in that case, you move on to something else. But even if it's not an open discussion, I think having the discussion with the class is definitely important. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't recall having those conversations back when I was in school, but I think they would have been important for sure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers, just like you, answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.